John chapter 13, verses 1 through to 17. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. <coughs> Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. The Lord, Simon said, replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said that not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor his messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen. My name is Matthew. Uh, I'm the staff worker for the Christian unions at Keel and Staffordshire and Harper Adams, which basically means it's my job to equip the Christian students there to live and speak for Jesus uh, on campus. And today uh, we're looking at the topic of love. Uh, uh, I guess uh, love that loves uh, to the end. And I wonder what you think of when you think of love. You might think of uh, couples in those rom-com shows like uh, Ross and Rachel from Friends or Gavin and Stacey. Um, or maybe you think of a lovely married couple like Sam and Helen, uh, who obviously demonstrate a, a great relationship. Uh, but for me, uh, it's a famous song that you probably know, uh, and the lyrics go like this. Never gonna give you up. Never gonna let you down. Never gonna run around and desert you. Obviously, it seems like most of you guys here know this song. It is Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. Uh, and when I think, well, I can't help but think of this tune. Uh, after all, despite the fact this song is a, a bit of a joke for a lot of people, I think when we think of a love that we long for, we look for a love that can genuinely never give us up or let us down. And that might not exclusively be the love of a lover, but perhaps the love from friends or from family, people who will be there for you through thick and through thin. And maybe for a lot of us here, we've come to church because we long for that. Maybe you've come to church and yet Maybe you unfortunately feel 
that you're neglected? Or maybe uh, your kids have moved away, gone to university, gone to uh, live their lives and have left you here on your own. Or maybe you've just moved to the area and you felt like you don't really know anyone. And so in this day and age, even though we are often surrounded by people, whether it's in our workplace, our communities, or even when we go out uh, in town, often we can still come home at the end of a long night, alone in our beds with a hanging sense of loneliness. But why? Why in a world where we feel uh, so incredibly alone, why do we feel like that? And in this kind of world, can we find a love that will never give us up? And I think it's a question many of us have asked at some point in our lives. Uh, For me, it was actually my first time at university. uh, And I was actually studying graphic design uh, at Coventry University. And when I first went to university, like most people, I was excited to go and make new friends, to meet new people, to get connected and make friends for life. But as I got there, I realized that I just, one, just really hated the way the course was being taught. I was basically paying nine grand for stuff that I could basically teach myself through YouTube videos. And not to mention, I was in nine to five every day. My brother studied psychology, he was in like two days a week. So I thought I would just go into university and have so much free time. But I didn't, because I had a new project to hand in every single week. And it, was, uh, and it was such a chore. But actually, the real reason I hated university was because I wasn't connecting with anyone. A part of me just felt lonely. And actually, my first uh, experience at university was such a struggle. Though I met loads of new people, I felt like I had no real friends. I would go home and feel disgustingly lonely each night. And so, what did I do? I left. I left Coventry. I didn't even say bye to anybody, not even my flatmates. I just packed up and left. And I know I'm not the only person who's ever felt lonely before. You see, loneliness is not uncommon. In fact, statistics in England show that in total, 45% of over 16s feel uh, lonely in some shape or form. That's a big number, isn't it? And that's only increased since uh, COVID. But why is that the case when we're more connected than ever before with things like social media? Well, you see, loneliness is not simply having people around you. Sorry, it's not simply not having people around you. You see, we feel lonely because we feel disconnected, alienated, or misunderstood by other people. And so often we try to fit in and hide away our true selves. And what that means is we can often be surrounded by people to have loads of people following us on social media and yet still feel incredibly alone. And what this leads to is the fact that loneliness can translate into a feeling of being despised and rejected by those around us. With thoughts that scream out that no one cares about me. 
Nobody knows who I really am. And I wonder if you resonate with any of those feelings. You see, I think the reason so many of us feel this way is because deep down in our hearts, we long to be known. In other words, we long not only to be fully loved, but to be fully known. Fully loved and fully known. But in reality, these two things are in tension with one another. Because the risk we all face in this world is the more we are known, the less we might be loved as a consequence. When people begin to see us for our real selves, all the dirt that we try to hide inside. And so we search for a genuine love that can truly know us, yet never give us up. And I think that's why many of us long to find dear friends that will last for life. People who can truly love us for who we really are. And so when we don't find that, whether it's uh, our workplace, whether it's university, or even here at church, it can feel like we've been cheated from something in our life. And we begin to question things and feel a sense of self-pity. Why isn't anyone asking me how my day was? Why isn't anyone checking up on me? Why isn't anyone making an effort to talk to me? And so when we feel like that, we feel like there is something wrong with us. We feel unlovable, unclean, maybe even a bit worthless. And I know I felt those very thoughts. And in a world where we struggle with loneliness, do we have any hope? Well, for me, I think we do. And of course, I think it can be found here in the Bible. And specifically, one book in the Bible, the book of John, a historical eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, written by one of his friends, John. And if it's your first time here at church, you might be wondering, how on earth does this Jesus guy relate to us? How on earth can he relate to our loneliness, to our struggles with it? I mean, after all, surely Jesus was a pretty popular guy. I mean, there are still people following him 2,000 years after his death, which is the majority of us in this room. And imagine what it was like back when he actually physically walked this earth. So many people were clamoring around for his attention. And so, how on earth can a person like this ever understand our longing for love in a world of loneliness? And we'll see in a second in this morning's passage, but just a little bit of context. Jesus had basically just made a triumphal entry to the Jewish capital city, Jerusalem. And of course, everyone was clamoring to see him. After all, Jesus had done some crazy miracles. He fed 5,000 people. He'd healed the sick and even raised someone from the dead. And so what happens is they basically give him the red carpet treatment or the equivalent of it with uh, palm branches instead. And of course, after what Jesus had done in his life, many people believe Jesus to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah 
The king, the savior that would help bring them power to overthrow their Roman oppressors. And so this Jesus arrives into Jerusalem with a purpose. To celebrate the festival of Passover. And for Jewish people, then it would have been just as big uh, as us celebrating Christmas today. But rather than celebrating with the crowds and crowds of people that want his attention, Jesus instead decides to spend the day leading up to the big festive celebrations in a quaint little guest room, an upper room, with his close friends, his 12 disciples. And they're sat together uh, at a table, much like that one over there, enjoying a little feast together with some fresh bread and some lovely wine. And it's during this time we see hints that all is not as it should be. Because here, in this part of John's gospel, in this part of Jesus' life story, we're nearing towards the end of the story. You see, Jesus knows that actually he doesn't have long left. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He was about to return to heaven. But that process wasn't going to be an easy process. But I wonder what you would do if you knew you didn't have long left. What would you do if you didn't have long left in this world? I mean, for me, I know I would want to try to take all the things off my bucket list and be focusing on my own needs. But instead, Jesus, even though he knows he does not have long left, he's not focused on himself. But instead, he's focused on his close friends. As John tells us in this next sentence, he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And perhaps this love of Jesus is the answer that we're looking for. But friends, what does loving someone to the end actually look like? What does it look like? Well, Jesus begins to display it through his actions. As everybody is just casually sitting around enjoying the meal, Jesus suddenly gets up from his seat. And you can imagine the the room freezing. You can imagine Peter whispering to John saying, "Why why is Jesus getting up all of a sudden? And suddenly Jesus begins to take off his clothes. And of course, that seems a bit surprising, doesn't it? For someone to try to show their love by starting to take off their clothes during a meal. That's a bit strange, isn't it? But there's a reason Jesus is doing this. You see, he's taking off his outer garments and he wraps the towel around him, around his waist, and begins to kneel down on the floor and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And if you're a bit grossed out by feet, uh, by feet, I don't blame you. It's the bit that often gets trapped in your socks and your shoes and usually smells a little bit funky. Um, and it's probably one of the last places you'd ever want to touch of somebody else. And so it might seem a bit strange to us that Jesus decides to wash their feet. But actually in Jesus' day, it was even worse. 
People actually used to walk around in sandals on dusty, dirty, filthy streets, much uh, like the feet here. And it was even grosser than most of our feet today. And so what that meant was that as part of the culture then, you would show yourself to be a good host for your guest. If you got one of your lowly servants to get up to wash uh, your guest's dirty feet when they arrived. In other words, this is a job that no one would ever want to do. It's not the kind of thing people who weren't servants did. It was a disgusting and humiliating job. And so naturally for Peter and the disciples who greatly respected Jesus, it was uncomfortable for them. It was like if the queen, I guess the king now, uh, or the prime minister, whoever you look up to the most coming to your house and cleaning your toilet and taking out the trash, your reaction would probably be like, no, no, don't do this. It's beneath you. Let me do it instead. And yet, Jesus is even greater than them. You see, God the Father had given all things to Jesus, his son, putting them under his authority. In other words, what that means is Jesus had the power over the whole universe given to him by God the Father. And what would you do if you had that kind of power? If I had been Jesus and said, I probably would have waited for somebody else to feel shamed enough to fetch me a bowl of water and to wash my feet. After all, kings don't simply get down on their hands and knees to wash other people's feet. But it turns out that this, this king, this Jesus, this king who has all the power and authority in the universe does, And rather than crushing his enemies, he instead gets down on his hands and knees to serve. And you can imagine what's going through uh, the disciples' heads in this moment. You can imagine Peter saying, "This this is all wrong. You shouldn't be washing my feet, Jesus. You're the king. I should be serving you. Why are you doing this? And so Jesus replies, saying, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Jesus is being a little bit cryptic here, isn't he? But it's hinting at something so much more crucial than just simple feet washing. In fact, in verse 8, Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You see, Peter can only accept Jesus' love by letting Jesus serve him. Not simply just in having his feet washed, but in accepting a deeper washing that Jesus can provide. A deeper washing that Jesus can provide. But what does this look like? What does this deeper washing look like? And how on earth? Is this a love that loves to the end? Well, you see, what Jesus is referring to is ultimately a spiritual washing of our hearts. And you might be wondering, our our hearts? Why would that need washing? And what is a spiritual washing? You see, what Jesus is basically trying to say here is that before anyone can step into the kingdom of God, 
and stepping into the fullness of life that he has promised, ye first need to be made clean. I think our initial temptation when we hear that is to think, I'm, I'm not dirty. I'm not, I don't need cleaning. Surely I'm good enough. And like Peter, we don't want to accept someone washing us. But if we begin to peel off our own outer layers that we cover ourselves with, will we really still find that deep down inside we are clean and pure? I mean, for example, imagine if there was a a film made uh, about your whole life, documenting uh, every single second of it. Even those things that you get up to when the doors are closed, that you wouldn't want anyone to know or to see. But not just your actions. What if they recorded all of your internal thoughts and desires in your heart? That time you thought about uh, hitting somebody because they just really annoyed you. That time you looked at somebody in a way that you shouldn't have. (coughs) Or even thinking that the world might be better off without this person in your life. If someone saw this film of your life, could you honestly say to them that you aren't the source of any problems in our broken world? Would you still be able to say that actually deep down inside I am still clean and I'm still lovable? I know that when I look at myself in the mirror in the mornings, I know I could not say that to myself if I was honest. In fact, if I was brutally honest, there are things I know that I've thought or done that I would be ashamed for for anybody to know that would make me realize how dirty that I really am inside. And often we try to deny that. Instead, we try to trick ourselves, hiding our real selves, and believe that we are clean, that we are pure enough, and that we do deserve to be loved by others. But in reality, we're like a polluted glass of water that tries to mix with pure water. And what happens when you mix these two things together? That means all of the water becomes spoiled. You wouldn't mix the Uh, the impure water with the pure water. Instead, you would just throw it out, surely. And so if God were to truly create this perfect world, a world where we didn't struggle with loneliness, a world where there was no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, a world that I think deep down inside we all long and search for, friends, would we, if if we were honest, would we be in it? I think no. Instead, I think surely God should throw us out or we'd just risk spoiling it all over again. And friends, that's what the Bible refers to as God's wrath and God's judgment. And you might hear those words and you might think, isn't God just being petty or irrational with this? But no. God's wrath is one that comes from being rightly and justly angry at how broken our world is. A desire to make things right again. And I think all of us can resonate with that desire. I mean, think about it. We see so many broken things in this world that we wish things would be made right. 
You look at the news, you look at things like uh, the war in Ukraine, the earthquake in Turkey and Siberia, um, so many more things in this world that we just want to make right. But despite that desire in our hearts for a better world, we can never achieve this on our own strength. We can never achieve this on our own because often we naturally decide that we can do it, that we can do it by following our own hearts. And we, instead, we know what's best instead of God. And so as a result, we can often try to play God, rejecting this creator God, the source of life. And instead, we push him away, trying to live life on our own terms. And friends, this is the heart attitude that the Bible describes as sin. In fact, it's the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. They chose to follow their own hearts instead of following what God had to say. And you can see where we've ended up now. And honestly, when you think about it like this, I don't think I could really blame God if he ever wanted to press the reset button on us. But friends, this might seem like bad news, but this isn't the end of the story. This is simply the reason why our hearts need washing. And you see, Jesus, by washing the feet of his disciples with his towel and soap, is basically just acting out a parable of how he will ultimately show his love to us by washing away every last drop of dirt, of sin in our hearts. But how will Jesus do that? How does Jesus do that? You see, he does that by experiencing a loneliness deeper than any of us could ever hope to understand. Remember at the start, Jesus said that he knew his hour had come. And what that means is that he knew that he was about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas, who after their meal and a little stroll in the garden would hand him over to be wrongly arrested by soldiers and other people who wanted Jesus dead. And in this moment, we'd expect the rest of Jesus' disciples to stick up for him, don't we? In fact, uh, we'd expect Peter especially, because Peter later boasts that he would be willing to lay down his life for Jesus. But instead, what happens is that they all run away. They're too scared to stick up for Jesus, and instead they run away, abandoning him and deserting him in fear that they too might be arrested and killed. Peter, in fact, even denies knowing Jesus three times. And so Jesus is left alone in this garden. They've let down Jesus in his ultimate time of need. And who can blame them? <laughs> who can blame these disciples? Because it's hard to do that, isn't it? Even for a friend or a loved one, it's hard to lay down your life for them. And so what happens next? Jesus is later put on a sham trial with the jury being absolutely raked, with people telling lies to incite the crowd to ultimately call for Jesus' execution. 
And so Jesus is declared guilty and is led to be executed in one of the most painful and humiliating ways possible. Crucifixion. In fact, it's so painful, it's where we get our English word excruciating from. And this is the Romans' favorite way to kill someone because they knew how to kill and kill well and to do it in the most painful way possible. Even before the actual process of crucifixion, the victims would have been dragged into a room where they would have been whipped and whipped with this uh, whip, a cap of nine tails of many shards that would basically rip out and pull out flesh from its victims with each strike. And you can imagine Jesus being whipped painfully, crying out in agony with each strike. And so even before he begins to the process of carrying up his cross, he's already bloodied and in pain. And so he now has to carry up this massive wooden cross up to this hill where he is taken and dragged. And the Roman soldiers begin to then nail his hands and his feet into this cross with each strike hammering into through his flesh and through his bones, with Jesus crying out with each strike. And so then the Roman soldiers will lift him up now that he's attached to the cross, with his arms stretched wide in painful agony, struggling to breathe as the weight of his chest begins to collapse in on itself as his arms begin to tire from holding his own body's weight. And as all of this is happening, the crowds are jeering at him, spitting at him, cheering on for his death. And despite all of these betrayals, all of these verbal abuses, and all of this physical pain, in spite of all, all of that, nothing is compared to the loneliness that Jesus will begin to experience on the cross. Because you see, what happens next is so painful for Jesus. Because what happens next is God, his Father, will now give up on him, abandoning Jesus here to die. And remember, Jesus was not simply a man, but the Son of God, the perfect and exact image of him in human form, and has been in eternal, loving, perfect relationship as one with God the Father from before the world began. And so when God the Father is rejecting Jesus, this isn't like some randomer walking up to you and saying to your face, I hate you and I don't want anything to do with you in my life. That would just mean nothing. You would just be like, that's a, that's a weird guy. I'm just going to ignore that. But imagine someone that you have spent your whole life with, every single second with. Maybe it's your best friend. Maybe it's your partner. Maybe it's your parents or your children. And imagine if they walked up to you and said that to you. They said that they don't want you in their lives anymore. And when they look at you, all you can see is a look of disgust on their face. Imagine how painful that would be. You see, the deeper the connection, the more painful the separation and rejection is, 
And so we can only begin to imagine the profound loneliness Jesus here experiences on this cross. But what's more is that God the Father will now treat Jesus if he was personally responsible for every single wrong ever committed, be it fault or action. And so here on the cross, Jesus begins to drown in filthy, raw, liquid sin. And God stored wrath against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction to Jesus. To Jesus on the cross. And so he suffers in agony, gasping for breath, crying out to the Father. And yet the Father ignores his son's cries. The son stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down and reply. In this moment, the father has despised and rejected the son whom he loved. And at the end of all of this, Jesus says, it is finished. And Jesus breathes his last. From the outside, looking in to this, it might feel like Jesus is some scapegoat or that what's happened was simply an accident. But earlier in John's account, Jesus actually mentions that he is willing to lay down his life, his life for his sheep, in other words, us. In other words, this was always the plan between Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is always the plan. You see, on this cross where Jesus hangs dead, justice for all the wrong in the world is satisfied and forgiveness is freely poured out to us. You see, Jesus, by giving up his life, now allows all the dirt and sin in our hearts to be transferred over to him. Transferred over to him and he gets his own hands dirty to clean us and make us pure and spotless. But why? Why would Jesus do this for us? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. You see, dear brothers and sisters, this is God's answer to our search for love found in Jesus. In him, we find a love that fully knows us, even all the dirt and shame we hide in our hearts and still chooses to love us. A love that chooses to love us to the end. Instead of giving up on us, instead of deserting us, even when we have rejected and deserted him. Whereas John beautifully describes it, earlier in his book. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For God so loved the world. He loved the world. He loved me. He loved you. He loved each and every one of us. He loves us so much that he longs for us to one day have life to the full, eternal life with him. But rather than throwing us out like dirty water, he is committed to us that he washes us clean so we can enter into this life that it was meant, the way that it was meant to be lived. Even at the cost of giving up his son, Jesus, for us. And so all we need to do, friends, is one thing. To believe in him. Some of us might believe that we are too unclean, too unlovable, that there's nothing anyone or any person could ever do to make God accept us, to make God accept me. If that's you today, then friends, look to Jesus. Look at what he has done for you. Look how he has made you clean and without blemish. And know that when God looks at you, he sees you as holy and righteous because of what his son Jesus has done. Not because of what you have done. Maybe for some of us in here, we naturally, like Peter, want to shrink back at this. We don't want Jesus to serve us. We don't want to be indebted to him. And we don't want to admit that we need someone to wash us clean. But if we do, if we do admit that, then we will find a love that will truly never let you down. A love that will truly never give you up. A love that will truly never desert you. And so how do we respond to this amazing love? If you're a follower of Jesus here, then remember that this is what he has done for you. And Jesus asks us to go out and do the same for others. As it says here in chapter 13, he says to his disciples, to now I have washed your feet, go and do the same for others. It might not be washing other people's feet. It might not be literally hanging yourself on a cross. But it means to show love to one another, even in those moments where it feels so hard, so difficult. In those moments where you don't want to forgive the other person, to forgive them and to love them in spite of that. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. And so we should do the same. You see, this is God's love for us, a love that loves to the end, a love so amazing, so divine, that it demands our souls, our lives, our all. It demands our souls, our lives, our all. But maybe here today you're just visiting and you're not a follower of Jesus and you hear all of this and maybe you're a bit confused or maybe you're happy to walk away from this. But please stick around afterwards and I'd love to chat to you or uh, ask someone you came with questions about this. Or perhaps you've been struck by what's been said today. And you do want to respond to Jesus' beautiful offer to you to believe and trust in him. 
And please do that. And in a second, I'm going to just pray. And if that's you today, then in your hearts, just repeat this prayer after me. And afterwards, we'll invite the band up to sing a song for us. So why don't we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done on the cross. And I know that I have often done it wrong. I am unclean and need your forgiveness and need your washing. And so, Lord, I believe that you really did send your son to die for me, to die for every single one of us. And I believe that your sacrifice on the cross truly saves and cleanses me. And so, God, I commit to following you with my whole life. I give you my soul, my life, my all. Amen.